Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, a short form conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career. That almost always translates to a shorter conversation. And that really was the intention today. But frankly, we just kept peeling back the onion. And before we knew it, we had recorded nearly an hour of amazing conversation. Tim Effio and I have become friends over the years, largely due to our affinity for the Caribbean and Latin America market and frequency of running into one another at regional conferences. Recently, we bumped into one another again at the annual Caribbean Renewable Energy Forum in Miami and finally nailed down the conversation that you are about to hear. And it is a veritable treasure trove for anyone considering the macro and micro implications of solar plus storage and how it can integrate into the Caribbean and even other emerging or developing markets. Even if you're not specifically looking at those markets, there are a ton of first principles of storage discussed here by one of the market leaders on the topic. You know, Fluence by any standard is the global leader in deploying storage technology for utility grid services. And this really was an honor to have Tim on the show with us today. We discussed the role of storage in the evolution of the Caribbean energy markets. And we go down the rabbit hole of utility grid services, solar plus storage, and even business development concepts that just might help you grow your company as well. You can find more Tactical Tuesdays like this one over at mysuncast.com. Hey, while you're there, I'd be honored if you'd take two more minutes of your life and fill out our listener survey. I'll be doing a drawing soon as a holiday gift, pulling from our survey takers, if you leave your mail, email, of course, and our email subscribers, to gift a one-year membership to the Suncast tribe. I haven't decided how many I'll gift, but filling out the survey certainly gives you at least another shot to win. You'll find the survey and subscription options on the homepage. And thanks again for helping us learn how we can serve you better. For now, get ready to tune up your energy storage skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Welcome, welcome to another Tactical Tuesday. As we said many times before, there's an opportunity for you to get a little micro view into a specific market or topic. And today's topic is all around storage, but not just any energy storage. We're specifically going to focus on emerging markets. Today, I have my friend, Mr. Tim Effio, Market Director for Latin America at Fluence. He's responsible for supporting development of their battery-based energy storage in Mexico, Latin America, and the Caribbean region. He and I have run into each other a number of times in conferences throughout the region Finally, we get a chance to sit down today and really open the book, learn more about Tim and the energy storage market through the lens of one of the market leaders, Fluence. Tim, thanks for joining us on Suncast. Hey, Dinko. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. A pleasure, man. You know, you've got a decade plus experience in the energy sector. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I look forward to my own learning as we dig into energy storage 1.0, 2.0, the evolution of market, and especially for places as vulnerable to the climate change that we're seeing globally as the Caribbean and Latin America, and as close to renewables basically being at grid parity and pricing for traditional generation. Never before have we seen uh, renewables sort of knocking on the door, challenging and indeed taking over in these markets the way that they have been lately. So you and I often have had these conversations offline, stoked to be able to dig into it today. But I'd like to explore for a second as we jump in to the discussion around the Caribbean and Latin America. You know, people often ask me, I'm, I'm definitely not even uh, second or third generation Latino. I'm as gringo as it gets. I speak fluent Spanish. I happen to be a Peace Corps volunteer down in Guatemala, so I had an affinity for the region. Well, but, but Tim, how is it that, you know, a, a Georgetown educated, predominantly working in the United States, American, found himself working in Latin America? I always think that's an interesting thing to understand and gives context around your particular domain expertise. It's actually an interesting question that I get a lot. Um, I uh, speak English with an American accent, and I say that on purpose because whenever people hear me speak English, they say, you don't have an accent. And I say, I do have an accent. I have an American accent because <laughs> my, mother, <laughs> my mother has an English accent because she's, um, she's from England, born and raised in England. Through a series of really interesting moves in her young adulthood that started in Chile when, like, right before Allende was elected president. Um, and she subsequently had to leave Chile because uh, Allende was elected president and then moved to Venezuela. Um, and then through a series of, I would say, fortunate events, found herself in Panama, um, which is where I grew up and where she went, my father. And um, so they had kids, me and my sister. And, you know, kind of my story is a lot less interesting. Um, I just was lived in Panama my entire life until uh, until I moved to the U.S. for school. And my accent is due to the fact that uh, my mother was a teacher and she taught at the International School of Panama. And so I just grew up speaking English at school and caught the accent from all the American teachers that taught at our school. So since then, as I alluded to, you've spent uh, quite a bit of time in first traditional power generation at Siemens and GE. How'd you find your way into renewals and, and clean energy broadly? Yeah, I started working in combined cycle um, technologies back in, in 2008. Um, at the time, gas was coming down in price and it was considered to be, or I guess it still is considered to be a positive thing that we have low cost gas in the US and we can produce energy cleaner and, and reliably from gas than, than we can from, from coal. You know, I got into that industry. I was very, in, you know, always interested in, in how we produce and consume energy. But around 2013, I really started to perceive a, a massive shift in the, the way the energy industry was going to evolve. Renewables have started to really be competitive with mid-merit generation in terms of their energy costs. And if you look at normal S-curve adoptions or um, curves of um, S, S adoption curves, um, you know that as soon as the technology gets to cost parity, it just takes off. 
right? We've seen the same thing in the past with computers, with cars, with many different and many different technologies. And in 2013, I was looking at the industry and I thought, you know what? There's about to be a massive shift. And if I'm on the wrong side of this massive shift, my career is going to look really different than what I think it or want it to look like. And one of the catalysts to renewable energy really is energy storage. So I started looking into what companies were doing energy storage. And AES at the time, and I guess arguably still is the leader in energy storage. They were the number one energy storage company reported by Navigant um, in 2013. I luckily had a fellow cohort in my Georgetown MBA class that um, worked at AES. And so through a series of conversations and connections, managed to manage to make my way into AES Energy Storage kind of at the end of uh, 2015. I've managed to stay in energy storage ever since. That's amazing. And uh, for those of us who've been in the power industry and certainly in the renewables industry, you know, AES is a, <laughs> is a, is a powerhouse juggernaut that has spun off a number of businesses and, and you were involved in energy storage back in a time when AES was at the really a spearhead for and, um, and creating, uh, as I say, beachheads for energy storage in the Caribbean, specifically in Puerto Rico. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, AES ha- was the first to put an energy storage plant in Puerto Rico. Is that accurate? So the first energy storage projects that we did at scale were in the Dominican Republic and they were they were alongside um, some of our existing or some of AES's existing thermal generation assets. Particularly, they have four projects, I think now that they've, uh, or three projects now that they've, that they've, uh, that they've installed um, at their generating plants, um, Andres, Los Mina, and soon at um, their generating plant, Itabo. Amazing. I mean, you've been able to watch this energy storage market really boom. So, I want to peel back for those who are unfamiliar with not only energy storage as a complement to both traditional and renewable generation, but developing markets. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about here within the scope of trying to keep it condensed and focused. Let's focus today on the Caribbean market. I think maybe we'll have the opportunity to look at some other markets like Mexico or maybe even Chile uh, as we as we proceed. But let's spend some time really talking about the the challenges and opportunities that are are held within these developing markets, you know, island, uh, small island developing states, as they're referred to, SIDS in, in the Caribbean. And I'd love for us to, to help the listeners understand how the storage market is evolving. As, a, as an entree to that, or maybe an appetizer, what do you see, broadly speaking, as the challenges that storage faces within the disparate market that is the, the Caribbean? I think you hit the nail on the head by saying the Caribbean is um, a fragmented market, right? There's many different sub-markets. Um, you could argue that every single island is its own market. One of the challenges that storage has macroeconomically which is the same as a challenge that any product could have in the Caribbean is how to get to all of these individual markets and how do you communicate the value of storage to each of these individual markets. Um, I should preface this entire conversation by saying that Fluence doesn't focus on markets where we don't think there's intrinsic value to storage. So 
we will spend time doing business development and doing market development in places where we really believe and we've proven to ourselves and to others that storage is valuable. In the Caribbean, the first kind of value that we've unlocked in the Caribbean through the projects that I just mentioned was really using energy storage as actually service and we can get into what the value of that is. But the challenge really in the Caribbean is taking that, that case study, that value, and replicating it across various different um, markets in the Caribbean. The value is mostly the same for all Caribbean countries or island states that um, import expensive fuel. Energy storage can really help reduce those, those fuel consumption costs. Um, and so the real, the real challenge in the Caribbean is, is taking that intrinsic value case and replicating it across the Caribbean inside each country's individual, complicated regulatory and market framework. As you said, it's, it's much more complicated than just sort of state by state in the United States or even country by country across Latin America, because every single market in the Caribbean specifically has their own regulatory challenges that are due to a myriad, not only of geopolitical, but local uh, resource uh, constraints. Maybe we can conceptualize here. We talked a bit about the early projects for fluence, but broadly speaking, what storage projects have been realized to date in the Caribbean? Yeah, so there's been a few high profile projects that I, I think are worth mentioning and, and they they will not I will not mention all of the projects in the Caribbean, um, probably because I don't know all of them. But the the really the the first ones that were ever done were done twenty years ago or more, um, in Puerto Rico actually. Um, and they were they were not lithium ion based energy storage projects. They were um, lead acid based energy storage projects that were put on the grid to regulate frequency. And if you speak to people who were around at the time operating the grid with that asset on the grid, they largely say that that asset was was a success. It did a very good job at regulating frequency. So those were kind of like the very first prehistoric uh, energy storage systems that were put in the Caribbean. Um, the kind of the first set of the what we would call like the advanced battery-based energy storage systems, which are largely lithium-ion-based energy storage systems, um, were done by AES in the Dominican Republic, at least the ones that were done at scale, um, at grid scale. And those were, like I said, done alongside AES thermal generation plants to provide, again, to provide frequency regulation to the grid. Um, since then, there, there's been a little bit more of a proliferation proliferation of energy storage um, in the Caribbean. We've seen a few different utilities do storage. Most recently and, and famously, um, Bermuda Electric Company um, has done a 10 megawatt, 5 megawatt hour energy storage project uh, to serve as uh, spinning reserve replacement. Um, JPSCO uh, has done a 25 megawatt, I think also half hour project. Um, to provide grid stability, do frequency regulation, and provide ancillary services. Aruba has done, I think, a flywheel and a battery project, um, both a little bit smaller in scale. And Barbados has also done a five megawatt, I believe, two-hour project to also provide um, grid stability services. And you know, so we're starting to see, I think, you know, from those first projects that that were done in in Puerto Rico in the prehistoric age, and the first projects that were done by AES and the Dominican Republic, we've really started to see a, a proliferation 
um, of these kind of grid balancing services uh, batteries um, across different um, utilities and island states. As you're digging down here, one of the things I see coming up is what we might categorize storage 1.0 for the Caribbean was grid services. You mentioned a few things that I want to make sure we clarify, just not to assume that everyone really understands what we're talking about here. It's not un- not uncommon that as we get into these discussions, uh, you as a subject matter expert will throw around things that uh, that you use on a day-to-day basis. And I just want to unpack them for a second, preferably w- with like the 10,000 foot level answer, right? So you mentioned early on these acid-based or lead acid-based storage uh, systems were to regulate frequency. Broadly speaking, what does that mean and why is it important? So our grids all operate um, at, a, at, a, at a specific frequency. And um, all the things that we plug into our grid are designed to work off of that frequency. And the frequency basically is a characteristic of a alternating current um, grid, uh, an AC grid, which we all, we all, everybody in the world lives on an AC grid. And it basically tells you how fast current on the grid changes in its, the, it tells you the amplitude of the phase of the currents. The US, uh, Central America, the Caribbean, and most of South America operate on 60 Hertz uh, frequency and Europe and the rest of the world, and a lot of the rest of the world operate on 50 Hertz frequency. Now this frequency has to stay very stable. Um, and the challenge that's faced in islanded grids and small islanded grids is that it's very hard to keep this frequency stable. And so what batteries do is they respond automatically, autonomously, and very quickly to deviations that they perceive on the grid frequency away from 60 hertz, for example. And they act to regulate that frequency by either injecting or absorbing energy from the grid. And absent the battery, how do the grid operators typically manage frequency regulation? So they usually do it with the assets that they have running. And the way they have to do it is these assets, these generating assets, let's say a coal plant or a diesel generation plant, will have to reserve a certain amount of capacity so they can't dispatch the coal plant to 100% of its capability or they can't dispatch the diesel to 100% of its capability they have to dispatch it to some other value, 85% of its capability, in order to um, ramp up or ramp down to regulate frequency. Now, the trouble is that these assets um, are relatively slow. And so they not slow only meaning, are you- Slow meaning how long it takes for the, the generation operator or the, the provider of that power to respond to actually be able to provide the asset that needed? That's right. So they're slow in terms of being able to either ramp up or ramp down um, in order to regulate the frequency and keep it at a stable 60 hertz. And so not only are you dispatching that generation asset at a non-optimal point, you're not using it to its fullest capability, but it's also not regulating frequency as well as um, a battery could do. You mentioned spending reserves. For example, the project in Bermuda what is a spinning reserve and is it how's it different from other standby recent services? So I'm gonna package this so you can think about answering them within the broader topic of grid services. So you, as as you think about grid services and how storage integrates, do grid services sort of encompass the idea of spinning reserve, standby, frequency regulation, low voltage ride through? 
and help me disintermediate these terminologies so that as we use them moving forward, people will be clear on what we're talking about. The spinning reserve is basically the difference between the 85% set point for the generator dispatch and its full capability. And so when a generator is dispatched to 85%, it's holding 15% of its capability in spinning reserve. So it's kind of saying, hey, that's what that's what I have available to move up if I need to move up in order to regulate frequency. And the act of it moving up and down is frequency regulation. And then standby service, broadly speaking, the capacity on the grid for these types of spinning reserves? So standby can, I think standby gets different definitions depending on the utility um, or the, the grid operator. Um, but standby is typically considered either can be synonymous with spinning reserve, and it can also be synonymous with an engine or a, a generating asset that is currently not turned on and it's, it's off and waiting to get turned on. And so it's a standby unit. Is that also what we think of as traditionally as capacity? So capacity, yes. And traditionally, yes, that is what we think of as capacity. It's um, how much generation you have installed in your grid um, that can produce power if it needs to produce power. That's the basic concept of capacity. And so you will typically have a little bit more capacity than what your demand is, kind of in as you would anywhere in manufacturing or any type of industry. And here's something that I learned when I started really getting into utility scale project development that's not readily apparent to those who maybe more can residential and commercial solar, for, for example, and are, are trying to wrap their head around how the whole power generation market works, which for what it's worth is a worthwhile endeavor for anyone. <laughs> Focus on the clean energy transition. If you don't understand the grid, like read the book, The Grid by uh, Gretchen Bakke. Think through how traditional power markets work. But one thing that blew me away was the idea that, that storage is now disrupting, obviously, but that renewable power, because it's intermittent, was what didn't qualify the way that thermal generation does for what's called capacity. And these capacity generators could go out and build nat natural gas plants or, you know, uh, build like a, an LNG terminal and uh, have capacity in the market to deploy power whenever and they get paid for it, whether they use it or not, because it's a, a basically insurance for the grid operator. Storage is changing that equation, right? That's right. And I think this is a really interesting future view of where storage could go in the Caribbean. The traditional way that capacity has always been thought of as something that I can turn on the second I need it, right? If I can't turn it on the second I need it and I can't know that it's available when I need it, then I can't really consider that capacity. So, Solar and wind have always been penalized because there's been this thought that I don't know that I can turn solar on and I don't know that I can turn wind on the minute that I'm going to need it. And there's a very important um, point that you touched on, which is that capacity remunerated in many markets. So being able to be an asset that provides capacity, whether or not you're actually generating and providing energy into the, into the grid um, is valuable. And so capacity is remunerated. And so a lot of plants get built under the concept that it's just, it just needs to be available, but doesn't actually need to run very much and provide that much energy into the grid throughout its lifetime. It just needs to be available as capacity in case I ever need it. 
And storage is challenging that by saying storage is an asset that can provide capacity. It's a non-thermal generating asset that can be put on the grid and provide ex- and provide capacity whenever it's needed. It can be dispatched at a moment's notice, but it can also be paired with solar and wind to make those assets dispatchable and let solar and wind actually provide capacity to the system as well. And you just used another term that's really important and has become even more uh, commonly sort of uh, part of the, of the discourse, which is dispatchable, right? It, in traditional generation, everything is dispatchable, meaning you could turn it on, send it where you need it, when you need it, because they're 24-7 uh, either generation or spinning reserves, as we, as we unpacked before. With solar and wind and other intermittent services, they aren't always considered dispatchable because <laughs> the sun goes down and you're not able to turn the sun on at 11 o'clock at night if, if need be, right? So that brings in this notion of storage 2.0, where we can now couple storage with renewable assets, which has been a major focus of Fluence and others like Fluence is easily and arguably the leader deploying these assets. I think that that's accurate. I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm <laughs> if I'm wrong there, but I'll I'll state that as a as a as a fact in the marketplace. Fluence has has deployed more than anyone else uh, in storage technology, to my knowledge. Help us understand this evolution. Storage 1.0 to storage 2.0, especially within the context, as most of the listeners of Suncast might be considering it, solar plus storage. So particularly focused on the Caribbean, it's it's really interesting to see that these first generation of storage have started to be replicated in a few different island states. They're providing the value of spinning reserve and actively doing frequency regulation, which is helping these island states be more efficient in the use of their generation, of their thermal generation. Um, It's reducing their fuel consumptions and therefore reducing their fuel costs, which as we all know in the Caribbean is very high. And so there's a lot of value being brought there. And and I think we're still going to see that value case being replicated um, in a few different island states. And hopefully at one point, all of them will do it. A really big secondary value Um, And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that renewable energy has really started to come down in cost and and is very competitive with mid-merit generation. And mid-merit generation basically means, you know, not your cheapest unit generating unit, not your most expensive generating unit, but your kind of middle generating unit that maybe you're turning on at around two or three in the afternoon when the load starts to go up. Um, that's kind of your mid-merit generation. And solar and wind are really competitive today with that, and we expect those costs to keep coming down. And so as you look at that, and as you start to think, hey, if I'm a Caribbean state and I'm importing fuels that are very expensive, I'm passing those fuel costs on to my customers a lot of times in a lot of, um, in a lot of regulatory frameworks, and I'm exposed to the fluctuating price of fuel, it makes a lot of sense for me to really start thinking about how do I bring in more solar and more wind? It's cost competitive. It's locally generated. I don't have to import it. Um, I'm not exposed to, uh, to, to fuel markets. And the way you bring that in is with storage. Storage really allows you to 
um, meet the challenges, the operational challenges of bringing renewable energy onto the grid. Yeah, I love the the way that this is unfolding for us right now, right? As we talked about this whole concept of storage 1.0 and 2.0, in storage 1.0, as you accurately sort of depicted it, as I understand it, basically energy storage serves as ancillary services and it's a method, as you just described, to reduce fuel charges, which is one of the biggest exposures that utilities and grid operators face to their budget, <laughs> right? And how, how they're able to efficiently operate without having to pass on unrealized uh, uh, expenses or realize unexpected expenses to their consumer base. It's been proven very successful, as you mentioned, in Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Aruba, many other uh, countries are jumping on board. The notion of solar plus storage as dispatchable energy seems to me like it effectively is going to help those small island states in particular displace thermal generation. Do you have a sense, uh, and I expect that you do, but what what do you think is the scope or scale of the Caribbean as a market, which is you know in many cases leading the the solar plus storage and microgrid and resiliency discussion right now? Yeah, they they definitely are the Caribbean. I think you know we 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 spend a lot of time in the Caribbean, and so sometimes we take it for granted, but. The Caribbean has been really forward thinking in terms of how do I bring in these new technologies to help reduce my dependence on imported fuels. Some of these uh, storage projects that have been done um, for ancillary services, like we've been talking about, really pioneering projects. And um, a lot of solar was brought on at a time before you know, kind of the big shift towards solar that we've seen in recent years. So they, they really have been forward thinking. And so when we when we talk about um, solar plus storage in the Caribbean, we really are talking about you know the the utilities and the people who work at the utilities and, and the developers and the regulators really taking a forward leaning position on how how can we bring this exciting low cost um, uh, technology into the market. And the operational challenge that they're faced with is that with storage and wind or with solar and wind the sun can go away, the wind can stop blowing at a moment's notice, and they have to balance the grid when energy stops coming out of those assets at a moment's notice. And storage really acts as a buffer to help them balance that. But also, as you think about increasing the amount of solar generation or the amount of wind generation onto your grid, the shape of the energy that is produced so like the way the, if you think about the shape of the energy, what I mean is what does the energy look like at six o'clock in the morning? What does it look like at noon? And what does it look like at six o'clock in the afternoon from a solar asset? You can imagine that shape is kind of a bell curve. And that shape doesn't always exactly match the load that you're trying to serve. It doesn't match people waking up at five in the morning, turning on their TVs, turning on their radios, getting their coffee going. And it doesn't match people coming home at 7 p.m. Again, doing the same things, you know, feeding their kids, doing all these kind of things, right? And so the, what storage is doing as you bring in more and more renewable energy is helping match the shape of that energy produced from these renewable assets to the shape of the load um, on the grid. And it's doing that with, you know, kind of four to five to six hour energy storage that can absorb energy from these assets and put the energy back when it's needed the most. And so you end up with a renewable power plant that has a generation shape that's much more similar to the generation shape that's useful to you as a utility. And at the same time, 
alleviates a lot of the operational challenges that renewable energy presents to you um, as a grid operator. I've always thought that commercial solar should have an easy button for financing, just like residential solar. But credit ultimately has been the gating item until now. Energetic insurance levels the playing field so that project developers can now offer the same electricity savings to small and medium businesses that were previously reserved for the large commercial buyers in the U.S. Their in-rate credit cover policy provides the missing link or that easy button I mentioned earlier. For commercial solar, it's basically the FICO score that we're so familiar with in residential solar. And it enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. Go to energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast and submit your projects today. What do you got to lose? 70% of projects qualify and the review process is drop dead easy. Go hit the easy button on commercial solar at energeticinsurance.com forward slash suncast. Hey, are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize the ROI for your customer? Extensible Energy's Demand X software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches that data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Head to extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your project and to learn more about Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers. You can learn more at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Can you spend a couple of minutes at least on why the the megawatt hours of storage vary what the purpose is for that and so that people who under, who are trying to wrap their heads as a developer around what utilities are looking for can understand sort of what bucket the storage falls into i'll give you the answer in the context of what it is today and then also how i think maybe it won't matter in the future which is which is i think is a really interesting thought experiment so you're always trying to optimize the size of your storage um, to both be uh, to both fulfill the function that it needs to do, um, and we've talked about two different functions today, but also be the lowest cost possible, right? So it can fulfill that function at the lowest investment possible. And so when we think about providing spinning reserve, like we talked about at the beginning, and doing frequency regulation, you don't really need a battery um, that has a lot of energy capacity. You need a battery that has a lot of power capacity. And that's typically the two axes on which you size your storage. You size it in terms of power and you size it in terms of energy. Um, and so a lot of the utilities that AES included in the first projects in the Dominican Republic decided to do high power, low energy batteries. So um, batteries that have the ability to dispatch their full power capacity for 30 minutes, or in some cases, maybe an hour, but not much more than that. And that's simply because they're just balancing the grid and the grid moves up and down. And so you kind of think that, okay, I'm going to have to balance in one direction and then balance in another direction, but I don't actually have to do that for extended periods of time. And so I will give myself enough opportunity if I have a 30 minute or one hour battery 
to manage my state of charge and make sure I'm not full and I'm not empty and be able to provide the service that, that I need to provide to the grid. When you think about the second example of changing the shape a renewable energy production curve, that does need a little bit more energy capacity. You may have to absorb energy for an extended period of time in the middle of the day when that energy isn't as valuable to the grid as it would be at a later time, maybe from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And so you may absorb energy for a long period of time during the middle of the day and move it to the end of the day. And so in that case, you would actually need a high energy battery and maybe a little bit less power or maybe equal power. Why do I think that in the future, maybe this doesn't matter? And it's because of the falling cost of batteries. As batteries get cheaper and cheaper, that boundary condition of, I have to make sure it's the lowest cost possible in order to get the most value of the battery starts to go away, right? I have a battery that's pretty low cost 10 years from now, and it, and it provides all the services that I need to provide. And I don't need to worry so much about like, am I getting it down to the, to the lowest possible energy capacity that I need in order to, to do the function? It, that is mostly driven by the cost of the battery. And as the cost of the batteries fall, that boundary condition falls. And so what I think you're gonna see in the future is batteries that are mostly all longer duration batteries, and that will be providing both of the services at the same time. What sort of batteries fall into that battery that is longer duration? Is there a chemistry differentiation? There's a slight chemistry differentiation. So it's important to say that lithium ion batteries are, are evolving. Right? They're not static. They're not what they were two years ago are not the same batteries that we're using today um, in the terms that the, there are some improvements. Um, there's, not, there's been actually a big shift to LFP batteries, lithium phosphate batteries, away from um, NCM batteries, nickel, cobalt, magnesium batteries. These are both batteries that are in the lithium ion family, but have slightly different chemistry compositions. And those chemistries are, you know, being optimized and improved through throughout or have been optimized and improved throughout the years. And so when you go for a high power battery versus a um, high energy battery, you may see some slight differences in the chemistry composition, but they're mostly, they're all today using lithium ion with some variations on the, um, the nickel, cobalt, magnesium or some variations on um, the LFP chemistry. One of the things that's, that comes up for me, Tim, and I just really admire the way that you guys have, especially given, you know, I mean, you come from AES, generations of, of building and running power plants globally. Fluence spends a lot of time, it seems, working with local utilities, regulators, and governments on helping them figure out the right solution on a market-by-market basis. How can we sort of think about the difference in markets, especially in the Caribbean, with regard to the way developers should be thinking about approaching these markets and how developers are thinking differently than utilities? Where do they align? Where do they diverge? When you think about how a utility may see the need for energy storage, it may see it holistically on its entire grid. It may say, if I put storage on my grid, I will reduce my fuel consumption. And that's an easier line to draw for the utilities. 
saying like, I'll put an asset that doesn't consume fuel to improve my fuel consumption. And they can do that because a vertically integrated utility, you know, has kind of a, a whole more holistic view of the grid. And when we think about developers, developers really need to be sent the right regulatory and pricing signals to be able to incorporate those services onto the grid that are net beneficial for the grid. So if I think about solar plus storage, for example, and our conversation about capacity, one thing that has proven really successful in many markets is saying, if you are a solar plus storage asset, um, you can qualify for a capacity payment because I can tell you to generate whenever I want to because you have energy stored in your battery. The other thing that's worked really well is for utilities um, who are the counterparties to developers to say, it's really valuable for me to have energy from your renewable plant at certain times of the day. And those times of the day might not necessarily be the times of the day during solar production hours, for example. They may be times of the day that happen between 7 and 10 p.m. Um, and so utilities to their counterparties who would be developers can, can say, hey, this is really interesting for me to have power at, at that time of the day, dispatchable power at that time of the day. And I'm willing to pay a little bit more for that power, or I'm willing to pay capacity for you to be able to provide that service to me. And that's kind of the way that I think developers need to be thinking um, about uh, solar plus storage or renewables plus storage is how am I providing a differentiated product to the grid? And how can I monetize that differentiated product? So another thing that comes up within that dialogue as developers are thinking about being competitive, finding markets, uh, I had a, a few discussions around, and especially this is common in the discussion uh, around CREF, right? The amazing conference that the New Energy folks put on, Matt and his team, uh, where you and I most often see each other. Uh, I think you probably would agree CREF's one of the most, um, sort of one of the best, it's one of the best conferences in the market, frankly, like just brings everybody together. Yeah, we love CREF. We have participated in it as uh, when we were formerly AES and we participated in it every year as Fluence. And there's very few conferences that I attend that really bring all of the stakeholders together from ministries to regulators, to utilities, to technology providers, to developers, and really everybody comes together, talks about really difficult but important topics and has conversations about how to move those things forward. And it's really unique, I think, what CREF has been able to put together. It is. I don't know. It's a slight public service announcement, I guess, for other conferences here. Uh, just I'm going to slip in the middle of this conversation that they, they really get it right. If, you've, if you're trying to figure out the market in the Caribbean, back to my original point, and you are being opportunistic or, or think that the Caribbean only serves as an opportunistic market, A, I think you're wrong, B, um, there are lots of stakeholders in the Caribbean who are taking very seriously the idea of how to develop co-located storage resources alongside renewables in much more uh, meaningful ways. I mean, Puerto Rico is a great example than many of the states in the United States or the countries in uh, Europe have been able to um, to actually get into legislation. I mean, there are only a handful of states in the U.S. that are even close to what Puerto Rico uh, and some of the other Caribbean nations are trying to achieve um, which brings up the point around how the utility, uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit in, when we talk about Mexico as well, how the utility 
positions itself with respect to the market. Obviously, the ministry and regulatory bodies uh, have a role to play uh, regulating what the utilities can and can't do. But it seems like in certain markets, utilities can potentially compete in storage procurement if they want to. Why should we leave them out? Maybe there's food for thought there. Just as we discuss this, how developers, how should developers look at the market with respect to the Caribbean? Should they see con- utilities as potential competitors? I think each market is a little bit different. I can definitely think of deregulated markets where the utility is allowed to compete on providing um, generation. So there may be situations where a developer is competing to provide solar plus storage onto the grid with the utility. But I think net 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 competition is good. There are definitely very there are definitely developers who have been very successful in the Caribbean. I agree with you that you should not look as at the Caribbean as opportunistic. Um, it's definitely a market that is worth being in. And I think competition with utility is net-net a good thing. We do not want to create an environment where the utility feels like it can't compete and therefore is being held hostage. I think having them in the market is positive. So within the context of whether or not there may or may not be a right, quote-unquote, approach to these, or you know, maybe every market is very market-specific the same way it is in Arizona or Hawaii, for example, does fluence take a particular position around how you approach these prospective markets and customers? Absolutely. So Fluence, I think the thing that makes us unique and different from other storage companies is that we try to identify the value for storage, the intrinsic value for storage in a market before diving in and trying to create the ability for energy storage to enter that market. So we spend a lot of time looking at fundamentals of uh, a market. And you can consider a market kind of any place that has a common set of energy problems to solve. And so we consider the Caribbean a market because largely the Caribbean has a common set of energy problems to solve. Um, They're small islanded grids that have stability problems, but also have to import their fuel at very high costs and want to move more towards um, more localized green um, sources of energy. And so we spend a lot of time ahead of time thinking about how storage can bring value to that market. The What we've done in the Caribbean and what we did in the Caribbean starting 10 years ago was say, we can provide frequency regulation, spinning reserve, ancillary services more effectively and at a lower cost than what is currently being done on these islanded nations. And therefore, there's value for storage. We then, once we identify the value, identify the hurdles to bringing that value to that market. And that hurdle, those hurdles oftentimes manifest themselves in various different ways. They can manifest themselves in the fact that hey, there's no way for energy storage to... Energy storage just isn't part of the regulatory framework. Therefore, it's not allowed to participate in the energy market. Or even if I do put energy storage on the grid and provide the services, there's not a clear framework for how those services get paid for 
by energy, um, get paid for by the grid. Or it's not clear that if I do those services, are the people who are currently doing those services going to be relieved of doing those services and allowed to do something different that's more valuable to the grid? And so there's a myriad of different, I've you know mentioned just a couple hurdles, but there's a myriad of different hurdles that can occur in the market, right? Whether, and a lot of them sometimes are based on personalities, right? Just the personality of the minister, the personality of the regulator, the personality of the utility. And those can legitimately be hurdles to getting storage into a market. And that's kind of the way that we look at how we go about getting into markets, how we go about getting into emerging markets. I would like to think that we've been successful using that methodology in the past. And so it's a methodology that we continue to use and we get better at it and we evolve in it. And we're continuously asking ourselves if we're doing it the best way possible. But that's kind of how we how we go about it. Do you also engage in uh, direct to customer as a channel to to move your product into the market? And what does that look like? We do have two parent companies. Um, one is AES and the other, and AES is a multinational power generation. They own and operate power plants in various different countries around the world. We have Siemens, the German conglomerate that hopefully doesn't need no introduction as our second parent company. And so we have a few different approaches to the market. Um, one is the one that I just talked about, which is how we think about going into new markets and which new markets we want to go into. And the second is, how do we reach that market once we've decided to go into it? We do that in three different ways. One is through, well, there's, one is through our first parent company, AES, who, if AES is operating in that market and is developing energy storage projects, we will support them with the development of those energy storage projects. And that development can be commercial support or technical support or both. And so that's one really important way for us to get to market is um, you know, working closely with AES on the development of, of their projects. The second way to get to market is through Siemens. Siemens is uh, a, a massive company that has a presence in over 160 countries, has a really talented and experienced sales force that sells multiple different products under the Siemens umbrella one of which is Fluence's energy storage solutions. And so we, a lot of times, have very valuable Siemens resources people in the markets who know who to talk to, um, know who to engage with, can be local boots on the ground for Fluence. And a lot of times they're very, very excited to bring a new technology into the Siemens portfolio and into the market in which they operate. And the great thing about Siemens channel is that it's highly localized, right? Siemens really thinks globally. And so all of the people that we work with at Siemens are people who intimately know their market. They live there, they grew up there, they know who to engage with. And then the third way that we go to market is through the Fluent Salesforce, which is considerably smaller than the Siemens Salesforce. And I form part of the Fluent Salesforce, but you know, we may engage or we do engage uh, directly with customers, but obviously our reach and our breadth is um, limited to small amount of people that we have on our sales force. So as we wrap here today, any parting thoughts that you'd have around storage 2.0, maybe even storage 3.0 as you see this market unfolding? Yeah, I think 
we're going to see a really big move in the Caribbean market towards dispatchable renewable energy. The Caribbean is kind of at a at a crossroads at the moment where they really, you know, they they have big ambitions, they're really forward thinking. They got to decide which path they're going to go down. Every single utility, every single regulator, every single minister is really grappling with which path do I take today? Do I really pursue very aggressively the, the deployment of renewable energy? And I th- think a lot of those utilities, regulators, and ministers are going to go down that path of aggressively pursuing the deployment of renewable energy. And as they do that, they're going to be looking for energy storage as a component to that plan to aggressively pursue renewable energy um, for all the reasons that we talked about today. So I'm really excited to see what the future brings for these islanded states that I've grown so fond of over the last couple of years. Indeed. And for those who may think, oh, what a what a tough life this guy Tim has. You know, as as someone who has lived a, a very similar business development career, it's not all glory. Um, e- even those of us who uh, have the pr- privilege of in, at times traveling down to the Car- Caribbean or uh, Hawaii or, or these places that you all like to go and vacation, 95% of the time we're spending time in concrete buildings uh, in the middle of a hot, humid city between and back to the airport with, with zero exposure to uh, the luxurious lifestyle that folks, folks on vacation might have in these countries, um, really dedicating our time to trying to figure out how to establish a sustainable uh, future for these islands. Tim, you are a model citizen in that regard. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen how you drop in and out in 12 hours to uh, you know, places that other people would consider luxurious like Barbados or, uh, or Dominican Republic. I just want to honor and respect that. And I appreciate your time as well. I know that our solar warriors have learned a ton from you today. Just want to take uh, a moment and thank you for joining us on Suncast for this, what turned into a rather uh, protracted Tactical Tuesday. This this has been great, Nico. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, definitely it's not all glamour, but I will say that a lot of people at Fluence are jealous of my job. So (laughs) <laughs> potentially as well they should be you do you do get uh you have a lot of um of wonderful experience now in the market well we'll look forward to having you back soon where we can dig into the topic of mexico uh, unpack some of the similar conversation strategies tactics etc here related to that market so we'll have you back very soon to talk about that thanks Nico. all right warriors thank you for staying all the way through today's episode If you, like me, are frequently on LinkedIn, won't you check out my post on LinkedIn and drop your comments on how this episode resonated with you. Tim and I certainly will be checking it, looking to hear back from you. And I forgot to ask Tim on the call to share how you can find him. So that's one way you'll find him on LinkedIn. But always, I list the resources mentioned in each episode over on the show notes page of my blog. Have you checked that out? That's also where you can find the social media channels, and other resources and highlights from these discussions. Check it out over at mysuncast.com. There's some goodies there on white papers and other really great content that uh, the Fluence team has put out on their fantastic blog. So I'll link to that as well. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, I really would be honored if you just take two minutes and fill out our listener survey. It's a great way for us to better understand who listens and why, how long you want these episodes, what you're interested in hearing. Uh, and it's a way for me to say thank you to you 
I'll be entering you into a drawing for a one-year membership to the Suncast Tribe, my inner circle of subscribers. Uh, they get extra goodies and content throughout the year. You can learn more by clicking on the member button on the website. It really does only take two minutes to fill out this survey. And man, am I learning a lot from you guys that are filling it out. So thank you. I respond to each and every one of you if you choose to disclose your email. But hey, I'm totally okay with anonymous submissions too. To all my current tribe members, you rock. And you know I am eternally grateful for your patronage because you do make Suncast better. I hope that you all are wrapping a phenomenal 2019 in the most positive ways that you can. I can't wait to see how we rock it in 2020 together. Happy holidays and thanks for being here. Remember, you are what you listen to. So thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.